hello there once again. You look great. You actually look really, really great. And how do I know this? Well, A, I'm just saying it's true. And B, because you are listening to the Inspired Minds podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host, which I have been for over a year. What a gift this has been. Speaking of gifts, I am very happy uh, to continue the work that I do in therapy. My God, being this therapist is exactly what I was supposed to do. It's nice to find that out, by the way, when you're 50 fucking three. But finally, here we are. I mean, I love doing this. I love being a therapist to be able to sit at the, uh, watch the expanse of the human experience in front of you when they're on their couch or wherever we're on Zoom. It's just a gift. It's amazing. It's like a sacred environment. I love it. Um, but that is not why you are here on uh, to listen to this incredible, incredible podcast that my friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, put together. No, you are here to listen to an interview with another incredible person that my good friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, producer of this little experience and screenwriter extraordinaire, entertainment weekly icon, in my opinion, in terms of the editorial staff, writing staff, I should say, at any rate, this guy is named Max Potter. And speaking of journalism, this guy is an investigative journalist, and he's written for quite, quite, quite a lot of people, including he is uh, Esquire Magazine's editor-at-large. And he's written for Premier Magazine and Philadelphia and GQ and Vanity Fair. Um, he was a senior advisor to Colorado Governor Hick, John Hickenlooper when he ran a while ago. And then he co-authored the, go the governor's memoir. And he was a speechwriter. And I'm a politic nerd. So we talked about that. We talked about Trump. And granted, this interview was done about three months ago. But nevertheless, the guy's still a jackass. So nothing's really changed. So it's going to be a current one, nevertheless. Um so that was a lot of, uh, that was a, in, in just an incredible conversation. Um, we talked about Machiavelli for some reason, too. It went everywhere. But my favorite part of the show was, if, uh, he's an, as an investigative journalist, he, the best thing about investigative journalists, I love these people because they, they have to tell the story first, or have to tell the story, but even harder is finding the story. I always think that. I think finding the story is even more difficult. Because it's out there, you just got to see it, you got to kind of capture it in your head and the perspective. So anyway, he's done this very well. He wrote specifically one called uh, Shadows in the Vineyard. And it was a piece, it was like this fascinating plot about somebody trying to destroy the vines of this incredibly expensive wine in Burgundy. And it's just, it's just mystery. It's incredible. So we certainly talked a lot about that. And talking about wine, actually, just on a sidebar, got me uh, thinking about music, of course, because uh, there you go. And I thought about that great song, Red, Red Wine, originally written by Neil Diamond and then co covered by UB40. I found a kind of cool cover of it, folks. It's called a band called Capena, and they are a Hawaiian band, family band. And it goes like this. It's amazing. Listen to this. Ukuleles. Super plays. Outdoors, it's a kind of Hawaiian place. Ah, look at that. The power of a ukulele and Neil Diamond combining forces. At any rate, I do hope that you enjoy this as much as I did making it, because that is always, always holds true. And I do hope you have a lovely evening, morning, 4 a.m., wherever you are, if you're listening to this little shindig. And uh, let's listen to a little bit more of this red, red wine thing. Maybe I'll go back. Go back to sleep with it. Let's see that. Oh, sweet. All right. Have a wonderful evening. And I will chat to you uh, next time we upload a podcast episode. That's how it works. Bye. Well, inspired minds dazzled wrong once again. It's great to see you. It truly is. 
and I got a really great guy over here on the other end of the uh, <laughs> microphone. This is Maximilian Potter. Maximilian Potter, please say hello to the Dazzled Throng. Hello to the Dazzled Throng. And Jeff, you can you can call me uh, Max. It's fine. Max, I prefer Maximilian. It sounds more. No, well, you you you, my mother and Bill collectors. So <laughs> knock yourself out. Well, then now I'll be thinking of Max von Sydow, the entire interview. So, yep. uh, thank you again. Thanks for doing this. Um, I always start this this uh, this podcast off with the exact same question, same question every time, and that is, when you were young. What was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you, that like lit you up? Was it a song? Was it a book? Was it a poem, a person? Where did you go? Uh, it was my father. Um, that's pretty, uh, I was amazed at how quickly that answer came to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the instinct, I guess, would be to come up with, you know, an influential, you know, book or, or poem or author. Um, but really what would have preceded that by a lot. And I guess what would inform everything that would come later that would add up to what passes for my life would be my dad. And, uh, you know, he's a guy who uh, had a pretty rough upbringing. Um, and you know didn't finish high school went right into the army he was airborne uh, got out right before vietnam and really just worked his ass off his whole life uh, he got his ged while he was in the military um and always struck me as just this brilliant guy he has a phd in street smarts uh, his EQ, in my opinion, is off the charts. And, you know, he, he doesn't think or talk in these terms. But um, so I guess my, my strongest memory that would, I hope, convey a moment that captures a, a little bit of this, a splinter of this, is he would come home from work. He, he would have a full-time day job, and then he would do a weekend job. And... Uh, it was grunt labor work and he would come home, you know, every, every afternoon, meaning early evening, you know, six thirty, seven o'clock during the week. And he would uh, just come in the front door of our Philly row house and pretty much just, you know, collapse, lay down on the living room floor and fall asleep. And I have photographs of me as a kid, you know, just sort of curling up next to him when he would come home. And I remember his job was he was a greaser huh. for a construction company, which means that he would uh, lube yeah. all of the joints and, and anything that needed to bend, essentially, for trucks, machinery. Right. That was his job. And he was outside in a yard all day. It was called James D. Morrissey Construction, JDM. And I remember when he would come home, he would have this. He hated it. He would have this sort of smell of oil. There would be uh, grease under his nails. And this is after he would, you know, shower and try and scrub it off with lava soap before he would leave. And I love that smell. And, and I, um, I don't, I can't tell you exactly when it happened, Jeff, but just through sort of like osmosis and watching him. To me, he just sort of personified love 
and sacrifice and commitment and sort of an understated, quiet heroism that um, left a mark. So that, I guess. It's a wonderful answer. I, so I'm going to do the follow-up, which I always do, and I'll be curious to see where this goes now. Because usually, well, it's, uh, you know, let's say someone says, I like Wizard of Oz, first inspiration. Then I'll say, well, how did that get you to where you are now? They're like, I am a costume designer. I publish it. So how did, how did that inspiration from your, of your father carry you to where you are now? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess in all things, um, you know, personal and professional, I've tried to, well, I've not tried, I've, I've had, I mean, this is not hyperbole, pretty much in all things I've had him on my mind and, you know, directly or indirectly, I sort of ask myself, you know, like, <laughs> what would my dad do? His name's Al. Um, and I guess, you know, it's somewhat tied to what I would call, uh, I guess, the second biggest influence, which is, you know, I went to, I'm about as lapsed of a Catholic as you're ever going to find, but mm. I, I grew up in a sort of a working class, working poor neighborhood in Philly, Northeast Philadelphia. And, you know, I'm generalizing, but for the most part, like if you ask what were the professions of the folks who worked there, it was like cops, firemen, nurses, roofers, paralegals. Um, and I went to, you know, a, a Catholic kindergarten and eight years of Catholic grade school. And then it came time to go to high school. And typically everybody in my neighborhood would have funneled into the archdiocese uh, Catholic high school for boys, which was then a school called Father Judge, which is, you know, all my buddies from that time went there. But I got a nudge from a family member who the abridged version is I ended up applying to and getting into a school called uh, St. Joe's Prep uh, in Philly, in North Philly, which is like, you know, uh, allegedly a fancy, you know, selective uh, all boys school in North Philly. And it's it's a Jesuit school. And, you know, I have lots of problems with the Catholic Church, and that's not what this podcast is about. But the Jesuits, I have nothing but admiration for. And the, the, the unofficial sort of doctrine or ethos of the Jesuits is to be a, uh, a person for others. I went to an all-boys school, so you, you heard MFO all the time, a man for others. Hmm. <coughs> now, you know, it's a person for others because it's, I ended up, our sons ended up going to uh, uh, a Jesuit school in Colorado, but it had a sister school. So anyhow, it's a person for others. Right. And... Um, so that led, you know, I kind of had my dad in my head of being this, my dad is a person for others. Like, like every decision he's ever made, well, that's an exaggeration. Most every decision he's ever made that I'm aware of, he always did so mindful of its impact on others. And then I get to St. Joe's and this actually is an ethos that is, uh, and it wasn't horseshit, right? Like it was part it was woven into everything in a real meaningful way. 
in ways that I wouldn't realize fully until years, decades later. So you have this. And then, you know, I knew at a really early age that I wanted to write. And, uh, you know, based upon the description I just gave, of like where I was born and how I, you know, I knew I was going to have to like get a fucking job with a check. Right. You, I couldn't. There was no, there was no trust fund. There was no long lost aunt or uncle that was going to hook me up with a gig. Um, I didn't really have any mentors or guidance in my neighborhood or in my life for a long time of how someone, you know, born in the early seventies, what do you do if you want to write and get paid? And, um, that led me to journalism, uh, because I figured, okay, well, this seems like something where I can write and depending on what niche of journalism I go into, you can, you know, do all of the noble slash cheesy corny things that, that galvanize it. You know, there's this gravitational pull. I think that pulls a lot of people to journalism that some version of what I'm saying, you know, you, you, you want to have a positive impact on the world. You want to be of use. And so that's, yep. I guess there's the connection, right? Dad, um, Jesuits and needing to make a buck and wanting to be a writer. And so there you go. You know, and honestly, I, I mean, this is fantastic already because I could do a nine hour podcast on my dad and say the exact same thing that you do. So we're both incredibly lucky in that respect. And what a great answer. I do want to get some other topics because shit, I could talk about yeah. it. I'll tell you what, I'm going to hold off on the asking. Last, you. The, the, the last thing I'll say, since you brought up the dad thing, then you can, you can pivot this to wherever you want, brother. Please. But I've, I've worked on a lot of projects um, that ultimately many of them come down to a, a, a theme um, over and over which is as, as men, we become, I think, who we are either because of or despite our fathers. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. Right. And then there's all sorts of variations of, well, what happens if, if a person's father dies at a young age? You know, the, there's, but ultimately, axiomatically, what it gets down to, I think, for men is that and it doesn't surprise me you know to hear you say that about your own relationship with your father which it sounds like was a great one and yep. that's tremendous um but even if it turn, even you talk to people and it's a shitty one um <laughs> in yeah. a way it's intuitively stating the obvious but it is this sort of like uh ubiquitous seismic societal impact i think and if you want to look at like what goes right and what goes wrong in the world um let's let's be candid like dudes have had their hands on the steering wheel of everything forever which is a big part of the fucking problem right and a lot of them have fucking daddy issues that they never deal with and so society in the world at large either suffers or benefits from it so anyhow there you go which brings me to trump so I did want to get into this a little bit because your father, oh, because look out of the gate, because I saw that you and I have very similar taste in uh, politics as, as, so to speak. 
okay, first out of the gate, it was interesting because you just brought up the father thing, right? And I just yeah. went to uh, this guy who was the senior editor over at the uh, Washington Post, and he did a book yeah, yeah. on right, yeah, Mark Fisher. And you know, we yep. talked a lot about that, you know, about the father thing. And I always say this, quite frankly, in my sessions a lot. I say um, that when someone dies in a family, there's some kind of of, of a dowry, right? Well, not a dowry. There's some kind of um, heirloom. You know, it's a car, it's a boat, it's cash. But it's the emotional and perspective heirlooms that are handed down are way more powerful, right? Yeah. So yeah. seeing that kind of like generational hand-me-down. But there's one thing while we're going to get into this. There's one thing that I want to call out. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I wanted you to expand on this uh, a, bit, a bit more. Um, Machiavelli, this is great. Machiavelli's, I can never pronounce his name. Machiavelli's binary choice was always horseshit. Is it better to be feared or loved? That quote-unquote choice is how an autocratic leader like Putin views power. Doesn't apply to a democratic republic where all are created equal. There is no choice you're supposed to lead with love. Wow. <laughs> you're, quoting, you're quoting a fucking tweet of mine, Jeff, for crying out loud. I am. Yeah. Um, I am. And, and yeah, I, I wrote that along with about a bazillion others. <laughs> yep. I've seen them. Uh, so just to make sure I understand you correctly, what, what is your question? My question simply is, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? You're supposed to lead with love, specifically that statement. Well, I mean, <laughs> wow. So I, I've covered politics off and on, um, for I mean I've been doing this for almost just under thirty years now, huh? and that makes me feel so fucking old. But I've covered I've covered politics off and on for a fair amount. <clears throat> I worked in politics for a little bit. Um, with Hick and Luber. and yeah, with Hick and I. There's just the whole idea of public service is. It's for the most part, it's bullshit. It's, um, you know, we have the military industrial complex and we have the political industrial complex. Correct. And I don't, I don't think that gets enough discussion. Like what, what are the chief factors that inform, how do we get the elected representatives that we get? Hmm. And when I worked for John, so covering politics for, after a while, you start to think like, all right, I kind of have a handle on how this shit happens, you know, for better and for worse. Sure. I think I understand the game. First of all, you, you acknowledge that it's a game, which is cynical and awful in and of itself, but we just take it for granted that True. it's a fucking game. True. Right. It's democracy. And the words that we use to describe it are just are are so beneath what Americans deserve and what the promise of the Constitution is. Um, but so you you acknowledge it's a game, and you you see the strategy and the levers, and who's got what advantage and who doesn't have this advantage. I thought I had some you know adult in quotes sophisticated mature understanding. And then you go to work 
inside. And I, at the time, John was a governor and I had left the job at the, the magazine of the city of Denver. And I went to work for him. And once you're on the inside and through, through like such a bizarre confluence, tumblers lock of happenstance, like I found myself in a position and I didn't realize it until I was probably on the job for like a month. I mean, I truly was like naive about what I was stepping into in so many ways. But I was probably one of his top three advisors. You know, there was his chief of staff, Roxanne yeah. White, who was brilliant. Alan Salazar, who's like a really brilliant political strategist and director, who's worked for basically every member of the Colorado congr congressional uh, uh, delegation there's been for decades. And then there was me. And you start to see, uh, you know, insert cliche here, how the, how the sausage gets made and, yeah. and how things get decided. And, you know, I could spend all day talking about sort of like, and, and by the way, you know, I have, have issues with, with my, my, my former boss, John, as, as a politician, uh, an elected official, but I'll say this, right? Like he's a decent human being hmm. and, um, I, I think what happens is people forget their humanity. Like we unnecessarily complicate decisions. And yeah. I was just having a conversation. I was having a conversation with somebody I'm collaborating on a writing project with this morning. And we were talking and it got down to, um, you know, a lot of times I was, I was saying to this person, so was it a, was it a quote unquote good decision or a quote unquote bad decision? Uh -huh. And the person's like, well, it was a, it was a bad decision, but good came out of it. And so I, what I'm trying to get to is a lot of times the questions, the answers are simple. And then people will say, but it's complicated. Well, it's oftentimes, it's not really that complicated. The right thing to do and the opposite of the right thing to do are pretty fucking clear. What happens is all of these people with these myriad self-serving interests, these parasites on the moment, they all want their own things. And whatever the, the right decision is, dies a death of paper cuts yeah. of basically uh, self-interest, selfishness, like self-advancement. And so to go back full circle to you quoting that tweet of mine, I mentioned it because at one point I ended up writing, a, this is how I met John. I wrote a profile with him and I had never read the Prince uh, hmm. uh, Machiavelli book, but I, ha I did for that piece because he referenced it and he's very, he's good friends with a guy named Michael Bennett, who's now he and he and John are the U S senators from Colorado. Hmm. And essentially Bennett at some point had recommended to John that he read this fucking book. So he read it. And then I tried to read it to prepare to sort of like, try to begin to understand John. And there's just a lot in there that's just fucking bullshit. I mean, it's, it's my opinion, you know, this is me like talking shit on uh, Machiavelli, but um, we just complicate it. Like what, what is the right thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? You're in public service. So talk to me about being of use and public service 
and executing or to the best of your abilities, being mindful of and executing the ideas and ideals of your of the U.S. and your state constitution, which which ultimately boils down to very simple human principles of love one another, be decent, yeah, be fair, yeah. right? But what do we hear, Jeff? We hear it's complicated, right? It's not. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't try. Don't try and rationalize your bent toward dealing away whatever parts of it is yourself that you're dealing away by telling people it's complicated. They don't even give. They don't even know the existence of Occam's razor. Right. Right. That's they right. just for their own. And I've been saying this for so long, by the way. The world's going to end for two reasons, stupidity and greed. End of story. Right. And that's but I do love the fact that you talk about that lead with love thing, because there was a book about 20 years ago called Love is a Killer App. That was really important for me. And um, and I got to say one more thing before we move on for a little bit, if you uh, if we can. But what you just talked about just now about being a public service was being a person for others. Right. So we, you kind of went back. Totally. There. And what yeah, I find and there's there's. Go ahead. Sorry, Jeff. No, no. I was just going to say what I find interesting, too, is that in the Buddhist religion, there's that, too, as well. There's uh, there's the Bodhisattva warrior, which I don't know if you've heard of, but the Bodhisattva. No, I'm not warrior, familiar with that. Yeah. The Bodhisattvas are basically the arm of Buddha in the sense that they will delay nirvana in order to help others find enlightenment. That's it's the same thing. Sort of the ultimate existential person for others. act. Correct. Yes. And that is yeah, and and, and you know you just because you brought up Trump, and I don't want to feel like I am not directly answering your question. I think I think Trump is sort of this Frankenstein Texas chainsaw massacre assemblage, the personification of all of the absolute worst darkest, uh, toxic characteristics of humanity, but in particular of politics. And in many ways, I think he was inevitable. He has been this Frankenstein creation that has been created by the political overt and covert corruption of our democracy for decades. Correct. And it's almost inevitable that he, something or someone like him was going to happen. And, and, and another thing I've said to, to friends is that he is absolutely, I think, the president at the time he was elected that our politics deserved. The insidious irony is it couldn't have been more contrasted against he was the absolute worst president that Americans deserved. And then you get into the question of, well, you know, Americans elect the system, essentially. But that's where, and this is, I was having this come, that's where I think it is complicated. And... Anyhow, that that's yeah. my that's my take on Trump, and 
yes, did, was he, it's been written about by many people, including Mary Trump. Um, yeah. uh, is, is, is he genetic? Is he, is he nature or nur- a creation of nature or nurture? Yes. Like yeah, exactly. his dad did a number on him. That's exactly you know, his right. dad did a number on him. No, and he's done a number on his kids. He's done a number on his kids. That there's a part story. of me that feels... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. There's a, there's a part of me that feels a tremendous amount of empathy for for Don Jr. and Eric and uh, Ivanka. Like, imagine what it was like being that dickhead's kid. Yeah. And what what values and and principles and just like we cannot wrap our heads around uh how perverted and warped their their upbringing was but they don't know any different no and so they they all became who they are because of their father i would say anyhow that's enough trump i think for any one afternoon We're good now, um, but I will say this actually is one last thing I do have to say to sum, to sum up the entire relationship of Junior and Daddy. Do you know about the famous dorm story about when he was at the dorms? Uh, the short answer is yes, but remind me. Uh, okay, the, so the story is right that Donald Jr. is at uh, his military school dormitories and Trump comes up to the uh, campus and everyone knows about it. Everyone's freaking out and he walks up to the door Knocks on Donald Trump Jr.'s door. Donald Trump Jr. opens the door, smacks him so hard he falls down. Yeah. One word. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. That's yeah. that's that. But I don't want to get to, here it comes with the Johnny Fever part and, and Dick Kevin. Now Johnny Fever. I want to have some cool. I want to have some fun with this though because I would be completely remiss if I didn't talk about Shadows in the Vineyard. I am a big fan of. Uh, I'm not so much of a, I used to be a big fan of wine and about everything else about 11 years ago, but <laughs> I love the the whole true crime aspect to this as well. So can you kind of go into this? I know, you know, a bit. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you how I got on. I'll try and uh, it's how I got onto it. And then it baked in there as a summary, um, you know, about 20 years ago now I took a trip to, to uh napa um and ended up hanging out with an old college buddy of mine um and he and his and i i i found myself in napa totally due to a a confluence of circumstances that i never planned like i wasn't a wine guy couldn't tell you a bordeaux from a burgundy you know um it (laughs) wasn't a wine guy and, but I end up I end up on this trip, and my friend Brian, um, who I met in college, he, similar background to mine, but from Pittsburgh. All of a sudden, you know, he's taking uh, me on this tour of 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 Napa, and he's an, he's clearly an expert. Uh-huh. And and I say to him like, dude, like, what the fuck? When did this happen? This transformation. I said, the last time I saw you, you know, you were doing keg stands behind the Delt house. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he explains to me how I got into it. And I, um, it was my wife at the time we were there on an anniversary and I just fell in love with the place. Like, it's just like this sun kissed, blissed out, 
it was the most relaxed I had felt in a long time. And at the time I was like covering a lot of like heavy stories that fucking bum you out that are similar to the conversation we had like, you know, five minutes ago. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I'm doing this wrong. Like I got to find out, I got to figure out a way to cover something that like lets me spend time in a place like this. Yeah. And he says, Hey, uh, I got an idea for you. And I said, what? So he tells me that I think this was in, uh, I guess this was around 2011, 2012. I don't even remember myself. 2011, 2012. He tells me that um, there's this domain, De La Romani Conti, and uh, from what he's heard in the wine community, and at this point he also has vines himself, my friend Brian, um, what he's heard in the wine community is that some bad guys poisoned this, this domain in France's vines, yeah. and they're extorting the, the, the domain owner of this domain del Romani Conti uh, in order to like get an antidote for the poison. And I looked at my friend Brian, I said, what's domain de la Romani Conti? And he made some comment to the effect that, man, you're like a Neanderthal. Like it's, he explains to me that it's the, it's the producer of arguably the rarest, most expensive, very small handful of wines in the world like Romani Conti, Echezo, Grand Echezo, Latash, all under Romani Conti. So I go back to my, uh, to, to the bed, bed and breakfast where we're staying, and I start Googling this stuff. And I'm like, you know, this is a no brainer. And there had been nothing written about it except one wine blog. And my buddy's theory was that the owner of the domain was trying to keep it under wraps that this crime whatever it was and it wasn't clear of what was or wasn't happening the domain owner was trying to keep it under wraps because these bottles of wine the most recent vintage will now you know sell depending anywhere from like what what appellation and what vintage you know anywhere from like four grand to to 14 to 20 grand a bottle huh. And, you know, when I first heard this, I was like, this is fucking absurd. Like nobody should be selling, you know, fermented grape juice for thousands and thousands of dollars a bottle. Like what? what it's absurd. It's, you know, th th this vineyard has it coming. Whatever happened, they have this crime coming. And the very long story short is I ended up going there and realizing just how ignorant I was and how wonderful that place is and it just forever changed my life so i did the magazine piece then i did the book and that's that's uh that's the shadows in the vineyard story and what did you learn through all this process how's that for a therapy a therapist question well in a weird way dude it ties into a lot of like what we've been kicking around so far and I guess one of the seminal moments for me is in, in the media attention at the time that ultimately getting put on that case, Romani Conti got all the attention for, for understandable reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but another domain was hit and it was De Vogue, which is in a neighboring uh, town. It's just, just next to Domain del Romani Conti is in a little 
gorgeous hamlet called von Romane. And just up the dirt road that winds through the vineyards is another town. And this is where uh, De Vogue is. And I met with the, I mean, I've told this story a million times because it is so like emblematic of the question you're asking me. So I meet eventually with their winemaker there. And he, he was meeting with me reluctantly. He was, he was acting like he didn't really speak fluent English. My French is like, I don't speak, let's just say I don't speak French. And what became evident to me is that um, the guy is a fucking genius. Like he definitely spoke fluent English. He was incredibly intelligent. His EQ was through the charts, off the charts. And, you know, at one point he, he takes me into their cellars and he's explaining the different wines um, by their names, like the Musini and Petty Musini are two of the, the appellations that they uh, bottle. And they're, they're big wines, Jeff, like they sell for a shit ton of money and they're good. But I didn't, I didn't know any of this then. But anyhow, he's, he's taking me through and he's like, uh, you know, Petit Musini, this is like a little boy. He has not been with a woman yet. He's young, he's inexperienced. And here we have Musini. This, this, this is a man. He's been with women. He has been to war. He has seen things. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude, you got to be fucking kidding. Right? right? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> but then I ask him, I say, hey, man, you know, how did you feel when your vines were drilled and threatened with extinction. And he said, he looked at me like I had three heads. Like I asked him the dumbest question in the world. And he said, well, how did I feel? And I'm not gonna do justice to what his exact answer is. I have to go back and like look at my book, but he said something to the effect of, you know, we are in a place uh, of, of the world that is like the womb of the earth. And there's nothing more sacred. I mean, this, in the context of France is a very Catholic mm. uh, region of the world. That's the dominant religion in Burgundy. And he said, we were, we're, we're here in this womb of the earth where there's nothing more sacred than the marriage of the vine to the earth. Wow. And we have the greatest like uh, ecosystem and elements. And we live in this sort of idyllic place where we're protected by crime. There's been no crime really, to speak of until something like this. And our only charge, our only duty is to do our best to vinify the divine. Wow. And this was attacked. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, who the fuck talks like this? <laughs> to vinify? Know, is vinify even a word? Yes, yes. Okay. And it, it's it's... It's sort of like indicative of everything we've been discussing. Like, you know, one of the thoughts I had is how fortunate I was to, to get to a place to have the opportunity to meet Burgundians and people like this that care as much as they do about something that understandably so to so many of us seems utterly pointless. But when you start to peel back and you think about or you talk to them about why it matters, it's not the thousands and thousands of dollars that it sells for. I mean, certainly that becomes a factor, but that's a factor after 
centuries of nothing, of struggle, of believing exactly what this guy says. And how fortunate was I to be able to meet a person, people, and a place that hold these things sacred, that, that are, have this divine mission that is so much larger than themselves, to care this much. And I think that's a lot of what's missing from what you and I have been talking about. And to kind of go full circle, like, and I have failed to do this. Like, what I thought about often is my dad needs to see this. Like, I remember when I told him I was going over to do this piece for, for VF, for Vanity Fair. He's like, he said something like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're going to fly over to France and you're going to do a story about some dudes who may or may not have poisoned some plants. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, basically, dad, that's kind of it. Like, it's a, it, it, you know, that's, and, and the other way he's been really valuable to me as, as a person who looms large in my life is, you know, when you're, they used to say, like, when you're a cub reporter and when you're in journalism school, you know, you write for the guy in the green pickup truck because that's who your audience is. No matter how complex or whatever the issue is, no matter how writerly you want to be, at the end of the day, when you're a journalist, you need to communicate what matters to real people. And so I didn't have, like, I just knocked out the guy in the green pickup truck and that became my dad, Al Potter. And whatever story I would be working on or writing, he was in the front row of the audience. Yeah. And so if I could convey it to him and get him to feel it and get him to understand it, then I will have done, I think, something that resembles my job. Beautiful. Well, I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm right there with you on the old pops routine. Um, so here's, okay, I, so maybe this is kind of my, well, this is. This is the this is the wrap up question because I could talk to you for days, but I have another I have a mental health client that I have to deal with actually. <laughs> but here's the question I always ask a lot of people, and I'm really interested actually to hear your response, especially actually. How do you know that you're done? Uh, I, uh done with what in particular? I should have clarified. How do you know you're done? Let's say with the investigative journalism story or whatever you're working on, right? How do you know when it's time to explain? Well, you know, there's really like two. I don't ever feel like I'm done, huh? ever. What, what it's taken me a long, it took me probably about 10 years to recognize this very valuable benchmark that, that you have to cross, I think, as a journalist, which is, do I have enough? Hmm. And I, and I, that doesn't mean the caveat, the parenthetical there is not do I have just enough. Do I have enough to convey what at that point in the reporting you believe to be the fuller context and dare I say it, something that approximates the truth? Do you have enough to convey all of what's known and to be mindful of what's unknown and perhaps can never be known. And so in the reporting phase, that is when I feel like for practical purposes, I have to be done because at a certain point you have to cut off dedicating uh, 
mo your most of your energies to reporting and you have to make time to actually write so you have to that 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 rubicon that moment has to be crossed as far as done like i would love to be able to go back to just about every piece and everything i've ever written and I don't feel like any of it's finished, you know, like yeah. I had to turn something in. I had a fucking deadline, uh, and I, otherwise I wouldn't get paid. So, you know, uh, okay. It's, it's due on the 1st of January. So I, I would turn it in on the 10th. I don't think I've ever been on time for anything in my life, but <laughs> you know, yeah. that's it. I mean, I, I, there's, there's two answers to that question, the reporting and the writing. And then, you know, the one thing I'll say is about that I think is tied to this. What I liked, you know, I could have made a choice to go into newspaper journalism or magazine journalism or really any other kind of writing. And I, I had it, my first like three or four internships were with newspapers. And I knew pretty quickly I, that wasn't for me. Now, that's a very particular, very demanding job with a very particular skill set. And I mean this with all sincerity, like I have absolute astonished respect for daily reporters because they, I mean, that pressure cooker is really hard to convey to someone who, who hasn't lived it. Sure. But, you know, then I did an internship with my hometown magazine, Philadelphia magazine, and that was the game changer for me. And the, the difference between, I think, you know, what lofty language, long form, uh, nonfiction narrative journalism, like magazines or nonfiction books is you are granted the luxury of embedding in a place, a culture with people for an extended period of time in a way that newspaper reporters, you know, with the exception of ones that work beats, but that's still different. Yeah. Um, can't. And what that enables you to do is there's, you know, the facts and the truth are not the same thing. And, you know, a magazine journalist, just like a reporter for the New York Times, you can go out and you can get facts. But that doesn't mean you've gotten the truth. Yep. And what the, the embedding enables you to do is do all the sort of like osmosis reporting that isn't in your notebook. But it's something that like sticks to your heart, that you see with the eyes of your soul, that you just feel. And it informs the facts and provides a context for the facts that you just, it's very, I would submit that it's very challenging to get as, you know, a very brilliant dogged reporter for a national under the grind of a deadline right. and all the pressures that you're under. So that gets to also the question of done. And you ask me, when do I feel done? When I feel like I understand the truth. And my answer to that is, I don't think I'm anywhere near understanding the full truth about anything. <laughs> and there is the answer I was looking for, ladies and gentlemen. I will, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of, uh, here's what I'm going to do next. I do have a client in five minutes. Sure. But I agree with you a thousand percent, my friend. Everything you said, I'm like nodding my head. At one point, honestly, about 10 minutes ago, I was nodding my head so much that it's like, like 
I was like a Metallica concert, like headbanging for God's sakes. <laughs> Seriously, fantastic. Uh, so here's the way I wrap these things up. I like to pretend uh, to say goodbye. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to pretend to hang up, and then we're going to do a quick post-chat. Deal? Sure. You got it, Jeff. Done. Here we go. First of all, Max, not Maximilian. Um, and by the way, all I can think of is Flash Gordon now. So there's that. But I'm so, what a great conversation. And I got to be honest with you. Thank you so much for giving me the gift of that idea of the person for others, with the Jesuits. Because again, that really does fall in completely in line with my aspirational fucking goal of being a bodhisattva. So, uh, and on that note, your turn. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I, I, I'm glad um, and grateful for the interest of you and Mike. And, um, you know, kicking around the things we kicked around, I think, you know, is always worthwhile pursuit of time and use of time. Thanks. You're a smart fucking guy. Okay, we're going to pretend to click. Land one, two, click.